The very first murder that was recorded in Scripture was the result of a dispute over worth. In particular, it was a dispute over religious worth. You have two brothers, Cain and Abel. Both of them came to offer an offering to God. And Abel's offering was seen as worthy and acceptable to God, while Cain's was not. And so God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. And Cain was so overwhelmed and full of bitterness and rage and jealousy because God accepted his brother's offering and not his own, he murdered his own brother because he had this feeling that his religion wasn't worth anything. And while over the past 20 years or so, the word religion and the idea of religion has been somewhat out of favor. It's been kind of in vogue to say that you're not religious. You can be spiritual. You can be a person of faith. But to be a part of organized religion has been something that's not been super in fashion. And even inside of Christianity, we've drawn these dichotomies between what we do and what we think religion is. And so we have catchphrases like Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Or we try to draw dividing lines between religion and the gospel. And I'm going to talk today about how I think scripture paints a very different picture of that and how we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because there is religion that is pure and pleasing to God. But even aside from that, even though that may be the predominant talking point in society, the reality is there is still a desire to be seen as worthy religiously. There's a certain ever-present nobility of being a religious person and being seen as someone who has some kind of religious quality. And so what we have to do is to start sorting through the things that are important and aren't important in religion, what is good and what is not good. And we have to figure out, especially inside of Christianity, because we believe that Jesus is the only way to a relationship with God and that because religion is a pursuit of God, that Christianity is the only answer to what proper religion is, we have to figure out what that word means. What does it mean to us as Christians? And how do we know if our offerings when it comes to our religious acts, are worthy and acceptable to God. And so we're going to look at the book of James, where James answers that exact question. And we're going to pick up from where we were last week, as we're in this short series through part of the book of James. And last week, James taught us about the importance of not only hearing the word of God, but also doing the word of God. And we're going to jump from there into seeing what the details are of a truly religious life, the way that God teaches us to live. And so we're going to look at James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. And it says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do just thank you and we praise you for your word. 
And God, we thank you for the ability to live lives that honor and glorify you. God, we thank you that you have called us to be people who reflect your goodness and your grace and your mercy. And God, we just ask that as we sort through and cycle through what it means to be people who live out a religion that is honoring and glorifying to you, God, give us the knowledge and the wisdom to be able to do that. Father, teach us to be your hands and feet. Teach our words to be words that honor and glorify you. God, teach us to see people with your eyes and love people with your heart. And Father, we just pray that in all things that we would live our lives to glorify you and you alone. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So it sounds like my microphone went out. Does it sound like my microphone went out to you guys? Am I, did I disappear? Will you try your scene, Lydia, the Lydia scene? That should turn it on. If not, I can be very loud. I think there's something in there, but not a lot. But rest easy. I have a very, very loud voice. So, one of my favorite things to do, one of my favorite hobbies is to buy and sell things. So I love to go to yard sales and thrift shops and anywhere that I can maybe find a hidden gem that has some hidden value and then flip it for a little bit of profit and then put that back in. It's, there's something very exhilarating about it. It's, it's like treasure hunting. I'm basically Indiana Jones. And so I go and I look for these things and I find them and I buy them and then I resell them. And you start to learn a lot about not only what individual things are worth, but also you learn a lot about value itself. You learn a lot about worth itself. And one of the things that I've learned, especially in buying and selling vintage things and all of that kind of stuff, is that you can ask pretty much whatever you want. If you go on eBay, you can find people asking all kinds of money for all kinds of weird things. I could take this partially consumed water bottle put it on eBay, and ask $64 million for it, if I'd like to. The problem is, this bottle is probably not worth that. Even if I tell them that the modern-day Indiana Jones drank some of it, they probably wouldn't pay that much money for it. You see, worth is not often determined by the person selling, but by the person buying. Something is only worth what somebody is willing to pay for it. And when we look at different religions around the world, and even when we look inside of Christianity, different traditions and denominations and churches, we see that we place a certain amount of worth on different areas of our religiosity. We look at different aspects of what we do and the practices of our faith, and different churches and different denominations will say, well, this is worth more to us. And so maybe at some churches, the singing is a really crucial part of their faith, and so this becomes the the biggest part of what they do as an act of worship. At some churches, maybe it's the preaching of the word. At some churches, maybe it's the sacraments, but we elevate different parts of our faith to be what we think is central to our religion. And maybe if Christianity was 
a man-made construct, then that would be okay. If Christianity was just a philosophy or a worldview or an ideology or some kind of moral code that we've invented to live a better life, then sure, we could say, this is what needs to be important. But that's not what we believe about Christianity. We believe that Christianity is the expression of the faith given to us by Christ, by God himself. And that the church and that Christianity and that to be God's people is something that was orchestrated and ordained and caused by God himself. And so when it comes to living out that faith, when it comes to practicing our religion, when it comes to putting the word into motion, we don't get to determine what the value is. We don't get to determine what things have the most worth. Only God can decide the areas of religious life that are worth anything. And with that in mind, and even in the midst of the sh- under the shadow of the Cain and Abel story, we see James begin this section of scripture with a very troubling phrase. In verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious, that's a hard way to start this passage. Because that immediately calls into question something that we may fundamentally think that we know to be true about ourselves. James is saying, you may think that you're doing what you're supposed to do. You may think that you're acting as you're supposed to act. You may think that you are a pretty spectacularly religious person, but. And this throws us back to verses 22 and 24 that we looked at last week. If you were here, remember that James said that if we only hear the word of God, but we don't do anything about it, then we're like a person who looks in the mirror and forgets what they look like. In fact, James says that we are deceiving ourselves because we think that we have some sort of understanding of who we are, but the reality is it isn't true. And he's reaffirming that here when it comes to who we are as religious people trying to follow what Christ has taught us to do. He says, you may think that you're religious, but here is the determining factor. Because you may be deceiving yourself. You hear a lot of times people say that actions speak louder than words. And that's a very easy thing to believe, but the problem is it seems as though God disagrees with that sentiment. Because James says that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And as we've already seen last week, and as we'll continue to see as we move on through this small study of James, living out the gospel and being people who reflect Christ in everything that we do requires the totality of our being. There aren't certain parts of who we are that are Christian and that follow Christ and certain parts that are not. But following Jesus is a full body, soul, spirit, mind, everything. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus and nothing short of that will do. That's why James says you can't just hear the word. It's not enough to come to church and listen to sermons. It's not enough to just read your Bible, but you also have to be doers of the word as well. And then later on in this chapter, in chapter 2, James is going to tell us about faith. And he says, if you think it's good to have faith, yes, that's nice. But if you have faith and you don't have works, that faith is useless. And James is showing us that 
we have to have the whole package when it comes to following Jesus. It has to be hearing and doing, faith and works. And that even includes being concerned not only with what we do, but also with what we say. And James here says that if we think that we're religious, but we don't have control over our tongue or over the words that we say, we're deceiving ourselves. Now there's this, and maybe it's a particularly American mindset, maybe it's not. I doubt it is. But there's a certain mindset in our culture about celebrating people with no filter, right? I'm just somebody who says what I think and thinks what I say, and I don't have to worry about how my words are going to hurt because words don't affect anybody and words don't really matter. And so I just say whatever I want to say whenever I want to say it because I've got no filter. And we applaud that at times. But the reality is there is a very stark contrast between that way of life and what James tells us is a Christian virtue in chapter 1 of being slow to speak and quick to listen. And we have to realize as followers of Christ that our words matter just as much as the things that we do. And we have to look to the example of Jesus Christ who is standing before a false mockery of a trial, being accused of crimes that he didn't commit, and while he could have spoken for himself, chose instead to remain silent. And so we see the value and the importance of being in control of the things that come out of our mouths at all times. And James uses this language of bridling the tongue. Painting this picture for us of controlling a horse, a very big, very intimidating animal. Horses really unnerve me. Am I the only person that's kind of a little weirded out by They're very large, and their heads are big, and they have just, their heads are, are bigger than my child, and probably both of my children, and their bodies are and they could just stomp me into the ground. I'm very unnerved around horses. They just seem very strong. And so James now is talking about bridling a horse where you can be on a horse and with just a bit in its mouth control this large, powerful animal and usually have it go wherever you would like it to go. And James says that's how we're supposed to control our words. To recognize that because if you are a follower of Christ, you've been given the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. And one of those things is self-control. The ability to take the words that come out of our mouths and put them under our control. We have the ability to do that, and now we have the calling to do that. And we need to realize that when it comes to living out our faith, a few off words can undo a multitude of good works. You can do a lot of the right things. And I know that I'm not just saying something that you don't already know, that we have probably all at one point in time experienced in our lives that you can do a lot of good things, but one off comment or one stray conversation can set the whole thing on fire. In fact, later in the book of James, that's exactly what he compares the tongue to. He says it's like a small spark that can light a forest on fire if we aren't careful with how we use it. But James even goes further than talking about the destructive power of our tongues. He says that an unbridled tongue can make your religion worthless. I had this friend when I was growing up. His name was Brian, and he was the friend that had all the stuff. And you guys have a friend that had all the stuff. He had all of the things. The first thing I noticed about Brian's house is that he had not one toy wrestling ring, but two. 
which I thought was amazing because I didn't have one, and he had two, and they were both filled with wrestling action figures. He had all the Nerf guns, and not just the little ones, but the big ones. The bow and arrow was a really big thing for me, and he had two of them. I don't know why he needed two of them, but he had two of them. He had a closet full of pogs, and I understand when I say that word, I'm speaking to maybe four people in this room because pogs lasted for about six weeks, and I'm going to call it 1993, but he had a lot of them and I wanted all of them. And so he had all of this stuff. And I remember he also had a lot of just random kinds of money. So he had money from other countries. I remember he had this one very large penny. And now looking back with adult eyes, this is probably something that he bought at the Stone Mountain gift shop for $3, but I had never seen one before. And so to me, it must've been worth millions of dollars, very large penny that I was very jealous of. And he also had a lot of Confederate money. And I, I'd never really seen Confederate. I was a kid. I'd never really seen Confederate money. I didn't really know much about it. And so he had just a ton of Confederate money. And I thought, he must be very rich. <laughs> he must have a lot of money. And, of course, since then I've learned about Confederate money. And Confederate money is a weird thing because it was money for, like, five years. And then it wasn't. And so there were people that probably had a lot of this stuff that was worth a lot of money, and they could go to the, the store and buy some things. They could you know, buy a horse, since we're talking about horses, and those were around during that time too. And so they could buy a lot of things with this money, and then one day, they couldn't. One day, they just had a lot of paper. And imagine the poor guy who didn't find out that you know, the South didn't win, and he kind of crawls out of his bunker one day with his stack of Confederate money, thinking he's about to go have a nice shopping spree. And he goes to buy, we'll call it a horse. He goes to buy a horse, and he can't buy a horse because he has all this money that he thinks is worth something. But in reality, it's worthless. And that's what James says our religion is like. That it's Confederate money, that it's basically monopoly money if we're not capable of also bridling our tongue. We may go to church and do all the right things and read all the right books and all this kind of stuff, but if we do that and don't have control over our mouths, all the things that we do aren't really worth much at all. We'd have a religion that may seem valuable in social settings or political settings or even family settings, but not where it matters. RBG Tasker says that James reminds his readers that it's very easy for someone to seem to be religious simply because they're often engaged in religious observances and in the performance of religious duties. And these may be perfectly good in themselves, but their value may be lost because the religious man fails to control his speech and the ordinary relationships of life. When this happens... Such a man deceives his own heart. Kerr Richardson follows up that cinema by saying that James called the religion that goes with an uncontrolled tongue worthless. His attention was on the practices of religion, its services and sacrifices. Worthless religion is then merely external and a virtual idolatry involving self-deception. I think that word is really important. The Richardson calls that kind of religion idolatry. Because what that means is we are comfortable doing all the things that we can to make people think that we're religious, but not actually doing what God tells us are religious things. 
And so that means that we're trying to earn our own self-satisfaction, maybe. We're trying to earn the approval of the people at our church or the people at our jobs or the people in our family so that we think that they think that we're religious. But in reality, all we're trying to do is to draw attention to ourselves when the ultimate goal of religion should be to bring all attention and glory to God. And so Richardson tells us that James is telling us when we live that kind of life where we try to put into practice a lot of things but we don't control our tongues, then we might as, not, might as well not try at all. And so we have to ask, how many of us are walking around with religion made of Confederate cash? How many of us have religion made with Monopoly money that means a lot in a game, but doesn't mean anything else outside of it? And James is calling our attention to the importance of paying close care to what we say and the words that come out of our mouths. And so part of being truly religious, the way that God calls us to be religious, is to be slow to speak and quick to listen and control the words that come out of our mouths and use our mouths, as Paul teaches us, not to tear other people down, not for destruction or harm, but to encourage and lift up and to share the grace and mercy of God. But James isn't the only one in Scripture that talks about worthless religion. If you were here when we were looking through the big themes of the Old Testament, one of those themes that we talked about was hospitality. And we looked at Isaiah chapter 58, where the people were crying out to God because they were doing all of this fasting, and yet God wasn't responding the way that they thought he should. And God responds pretty harshly. He says, congratulations. You're doing all this, this outside stuff. You're, you're not eating, and you're wearing sackcloth, and you're rubbing ashes on your face, and you look pretty good and miserable. But is that what you think I want when it comes to fasting? Is that the kind of religion that you think that I want? No, while you're sitting here fasting and putting on this show, there are people that are hungry, and people that are hurting, and people that are homeless, and you are doing nothing about caring for those people. And so if you want my attention... If you want me to receive your religion as something that is worthy, then you go outside and you bring those people into your home. You go outside and you give them something to eat. You go outside and you care for them. And then, when you do those things, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear God. He says these actions are are not what it looks like to be my people. It's not what it looks like to be religious the way that I am calling you to be religious. What it looks like is to go out and to care for those in need. In Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah has recognized the problems going on in the life of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 64, this passage is written in the rubble of what used to be Jerusalem as the Babylonians have come in and taken them in to exile. And Isaiah says that we have all become like one who is unclean. And our righteous deeds or our religious acts are like a polluted garment. Or some translations say it's like filthy rags. That the best we can do is like garbage in front of you and the reason why they're experiencing that judgment and their righteousness is meaning nothing to God is because again they refuse to show hospitality and kindness to those in need and now on this side of the resurrection 
James reaffirms that truth. In verse 27, he spells out what religion is. So if if this unbridled tongue makes our religion worthless, then what gives our religion value? James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, when we look at Scripture... The, the widows and the orphans were, during this time period, the most vulnerable people in society. They were the people who couldn't do things for themselves. They were, were children without parents and wives without husbands that could work and bring in the money. And so these were the people who were the most vulnerable in society and at the highest risk of, of starving and being homeless and hurting and being in need. And the Bible talks about orphans and widows constantly. In fact, Austin Walker, who wrote a book on caring for widows and the Christian call to care for widows, says that widows alone are referenced some 80 times inside of the Bible. And so clearly this is a very high priority for God. And we see that God has a heart for the vulnerable and the broken and the people in society who can't care for themselves. And we see very clearly here that James teaches us that true religion is caring for for the vulnerable people in the midst of our community. To use our lives and to use what we have and to use our churches and to use our faith to put that into practice, to care for people who need to be cared for. And obviously, this is a very easy thing to agree with. If we say that out loud in a church, very few people are going to be like, oh, no, we don't need to care for children. We know that we need to care for people, and it's an easy box to check. Because there are very easy ways, especially living in the world that we live in now, there are very easy ways to make ourselves think that we have cared for people who are in need. We can throw something up on social media. You can text in the midst of disaster relief and send some money different places. You can drop some money in a box. You can do all kinds of things to care for people without ever actually having to come into contact with people. But James doesn't let us off easy. Because pay attention to the language here in verse 27. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. You see, this call to visit is a lot more than just caring for someone. James says that we are called to visit people who are hurting and broken and in need in the midst of their affliction. It means we have to get up and go beyond the walls of the church and find people in our community who are in need and find them in the midst of their need, in the midst of their affliction, and go to them where they are as they are. That we have to be able to to go out and to get our hands dirty doing the work of Christ, meeting these people, meeting these vulnerable and broken people, and being a voice for the voiceless. And being a people who care for people who can't care for themselves and to feed the hungry and care for the sick and do all of these things that James and Jesus and the rest of Scripture compels us to do. And after all, isn't this exactly what Jesus did for us? Because as we enter the season of Epiphany, the theme and the the message of the season of Epiphany is a reminder of the incarnation of Christ. That Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. 
that Jesus was with God in the beginning and he is God and that even though he is in the very nature God, as Paul said, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but because he looked at us and saw our need, he didn't care for us from far away. He didn't love us from far away, but God so loved the world in the midst of our need and in the midst of our brokenness that he gave his son. And that Jesus visited with us in our time of need to love us and to care for us and to bring about the salvation we could need in a way that we could touch and feel and take hold of. In fact, Luke tells a story in chapter 6. And he says that Jesus came to the house of a widow whose son had died. And he brought this son back to life. And the people were amazed. One of the people gathered around that saw this amazing act of God's power and God's compassion at one moment. The only phrase they could utter is that God has visited us. And that's what we're called to do. You see, the ultimate goal of the Christian religion is to honor and glorify God. And the best way that we can do that is to faithfully reflect his character. And because God is an incarnational God who didn't love from far away, but loved us close up and put his hands to the plow and did the work of redemption that we couldn't do for us, we have the responsibility to be incarnational people who go out and visit those who are hurting and broken and in need and love them close up. Psalm 68.5 says that God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of the widow. And to put all this together, Douglas Moo says that care for orphans and widows is commanded in the Old Testament as a way of imitating God's own concern for them. He's the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. In a text that bears many similarities to this passage in James, Isaiah announces that God will no longer recognize the worship his people offer him or their religion. They must themselves learn to do good, seek justice, Correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And the orphan and the widow become types of those who find themselves helpless in the world. Now listen to this. I love the way he words this. He says, Christians whose religion is pure will imitate their father by intervening to help the helpless. Those who suffer from want in the third world and in the inner city. Those who are unemployed and penniless and those who are inadequately represented in government or law, these are the people who should see abundant evidence of Christians' pure religion. Our religion is useless and worthless if it isn't offered for the good of the widows and orphans in our society those who are hurting and broken, the voiceless and the hungry and the poor and the broken and those who are suffering and struggling, those who are afflicted and oppressed. Our religion is supposed to be used for the good of those people. And unless we are, our religion is worthless. And so we have to make sure that our mouths speak words that reflect the word of God. And that our lives are used to honor and to serve and to love those who are in vulnerable positions. But, lest we think that religion is all about just good speech or social concern, James closes this verse by saying this. 
It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, the language that James used here when he says that we should be unstained from the world is similar language to the, the idea of an unblemished lamb. And obviously that takes our minds back to Passover, but more importantly, it pushes our minds towards the one that Passover foreshadowed in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect spotless lamb of God who offered himself as a sacrifice for us. And so James tells us that our pursuit in religion is to be as unblemished as Christ himself, to reflect Christ not only in what we do, but in our character and in our righteousness. In fact, even Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we are called to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, that that is our pursuit. And even though we fall short so many times, that should be our ultimate goal and desire to live our lives as, as much as possible to be unstained by the world around us. And it feels like the easy solution to that would be, like, okay, well, let's pack up, find a nice piece of land somewhere, maybe build a fence, maybe make it a little taller, maybe make it a wall, maybe do whatever we can to keep ourselves as far away from anybody else in the world as we possibly humanly can so that nobody outside of our little church community can get to us so that we can make sure that we are completely unstained by the world around us. But Jesus confronted the separatists of his time. And Jesus prayed a very different prayer for his disciples, asking that God wouldn't take them out of the world, but he would leave them in the world so that they could be in the world but not of it. We're told in Scripture to shine like stars in the midst of a dark world. To reflect the glory of God as citizens of heaven in all that we do. Because if we separated ourselves from the rest of the world, then we would be completely unable to do what God is calling us to do here by loving and caring for those around us who are in need. We wouldn't be able to fulfill our ultimate purpose of going out and making disciples of all nations and being the witnesses to all the world that Jesus has called us to be. And so what that means is we again have to enact a little bit of the self-control that God has given us to be surrounded by a world filled with temptation and sin and to in all cases, as best as we possibly can, pursue Christ instead. You see, true religion isn't about living out this life that outweighs bad with good. That if I just love enough people who are vulnerable, or if I just watch my mouth enough, or if I just do enough good things or offer up enough offerings, that it doesn't matter all the things that I do in my life. True religion, as Jesus teaches us to follow, is a total transformation from the inside out. It means, as Paul tells us, that we reject what is sinful and we lavish in what honors Christ. And so what we see here is that this line between pure religion and worthless religion is very sharp and it's very clear. But we should also be reminded here that we absolutely can fake it. We can fake it well enough to fool others and we can even fake it well enough to fool ourselves. We can go through the motions, we can do the church thing, we can study what it looks like to be as close to a Christian as we possibly can, and we can live out that stereotype. But we have a clear definition here in the book of James of what true religion looks like. 
And he tells us that any other religion or any other practicing of religion is worthless. And so why would we bother with the fake stuff? Why would we wear ourselves out doing things that in the grand scheme of eternity don't mean much when James is telling us very plainly, if you want to live a life that honors and serves God, then do this. Watch your mouth, care for the vulnerable people in the world, and keep yourself unblemished and unstained by the world around you. Live lives that are worthy of the gospel that you've been given. Live lives that reflect the Christ who gave it to you and use words that build people up instead of tearing people down. And we get a chance as a church to put this into practice. Because God has given us an opportunity to be in a place and to meet in a space where some of the most vulnerable people in our community come on a weekly basis to literally find food and to find help in their time of need. And so we have the option. We can go over there and use it as a meeting space and say, well, this is a nice temporary spot where it's big enough for us to keep growing and to keep moving, and then maybe we find something else and we just go there for a season, then we leave. Or we can look at this as an opportunity given to us by God to be in the midst of the most vulnerable people in our community, in our society, and to love them and to visit them and to care for them. But we have to take that responsibility. We have to decide that worthless religion is not what we're about. But as Redeeming Grace Community Church, we are going to be a church defined by true religion that is pure and undefiled before God. And we're going to use our words well. We're going to use our lives well. And we are going to serve and love and care for the people in our community. And what's amazing about this is that this is a calling to all people. As we're going to see next week, James gives this warning about showing partiality to people and to showing favoritism to people. But he's speaking to a group of people who are being oppressed and who are in times of need themselves. And so James is telling us that no matter what our station in life is, no matter what we are dealing with, even if we ourselves are vulnerable people, we still have the opportunity and the giftedness and the ability to care for other people who are in a similar situation. And so we all have the responsibility to love and to care for the vulnerable people in our community, and we get a chance to put that into practice and to literally put our religion where our mouths are. And also, each and every one of us have a responsibility to put this religion into practice every single day. To be people who honor God with the things that come out of our mouths and also the things that we leave inside of them. To be sure to be self-controlled and bridle our mouths and use our words to share the gospel, use our words to lift up the broken, use our words as a source of encouragement and a source of life-giving speech and also to be careful to be slow to speak and quick to listen. But then when we listen and when we hear the word of God, to not only hear the word of God, but to do the word of God, in particularly by caring for those who are in need. And that means that we have to pay attention. That means we have to look for the need around us. Sometimes even the need inside of our own homes and care for the people that God has put in our lives and not simply do that from a distance, but to be willing to be vulnerable enough ourselves to visit with people in the midst of their hurting and their affliction. And to also be people 
to pray the same prayer Jesus taught us to pray, to lead, that God would not lead us into temptation, but that he would deliver us from evil, and that while there is temptation and sin all around us, that we would be people who honor the gospel we've been given by the way that we live, in the things that we do, and in the things that we don't do. And so the question we each have to ask ourselves today is what is our religion worth? Are we people that live out our faith in the way that James is calling us to do it? Or do we find ourselves more often than not deceiving ourselves? I know as a pastor, I know that this is a church and this is a place where I see your religion very clearly. And I know that this is a church and this is a people who not only loves people from a distance, but we are willing to go and to love and to serve and to care for people where they are. And I am thankful for the faith that you guys have. And so as we continue moving on as Redeeming Grace Community Church and each one of us as followers of Christ, as we continue moving on, let's do what Paul calls to do and excel still more and continue digging in and loving and serving and being faithful representatives of Christ everywhere that we go.